Georgia's DBHDD is warning all Georgians that half of all opioid deaths happen at home when people take an oxy or a perk with a glass of alcohol for stress or to sleep. Learn more about protecting families from opioid overdoses at opioidresponse.info. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. The busy season for Georgia state lawmakers is now over. Yes, the legislation session wrapped up on April 2nd, but yesterday marked the final close to the 2019 lawmaking season. Governor Brian Kemp had 40 days after sine die to publicly sign or veto bills. That period ended last night. Now, everything that hasn't seen his pen is automatically law. Returning with On Second Thought's breakdown of how our state laws are changing is GPB political reporter Stephen Fowler. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. So I said do or die, but it's really more like did or died. This had to have happened by yesterday. Right. So today is kind of the day that we, the dust settles and we're able to look at the things that were signed, the things that were vetoed, and then remember all of the other things that got sent to the governor's desk that are now law that maybe didn't get those public press releases or proclamations. Well, that's what we've got you here for. Let's start with one of the most controversial bills signed last week, HB 481, also known as the heartbeat bill, scheduled to take effect on January the 1st of 2020, effectively banning abortions in the state. Stephen, briefly remind us of how this changes existing law. Well, existing law, uh, abortions can be performed in Georgia up to 20 weeks of pregnancy. This would move that back to about six weeks when a heartbeat is detected uh, in an embryo. And uh, some other changes that would be made, would it would establish personhood rights. So once that heartbeat is detected, that means that an embryo or a fetus uh, will have certain legal and economic rights, including the rights to uh, being counted in some state census populations, and parents could claim that on their taxes as a dependent. Usually when the governor's signature lands on a bill, we say it will take effect on an assigned day. This is going to face some big challenges before New Year's Day. What kind of court battles are expected ahead? Well, the American Civil Liberties Union of Georgia, Planned Parenthood, and several other groups have said we will see you in court. Uh, this is going to face legal challenges really on two fronts. The first front is going to be that six-week abortion ban, and the other front is going to be that personhood language. One of the arguments that I've seen is that on January 1st, if this law takes effect, it could mean Georgia is uh, wrongly imprisoning thousands potentially of people because pregnant women who are in jail that once this law takes effect, uh, the baby that they're pregnant with, fetus, embryo, the different stages would be a person who was not convicted of a crime. So has rights. Here's in this, of course, was part of the intent. This is the bill's sponsor. One of them, Republican Representative Ed Setzer, speaking to reporters after the bill was signed last Tuesday. Yeah, the Life Act is fundamentally different than the uh, heartbeat bills in other states. Because in Georgia, we, we not only recognized that children with a heartbeat are worthy of protection from abortion, but we laid the, the foundation of personhood. Some Hollywood producers and showrunners say they will boycott Georgia's film industry over this abortion bill. Surprise in some corners also not to see more public opposition. So what kind of reaction have you seen? Well, one of the big headlines that's gone around is three production companies saying that they are going to boycott Georgia or no longer film in Georgia. Uh, the AJC actually found out that those three companies have never filmed in Georgia, and now I guess they will not plan to film in Georgia. One production company, it's J.J. Uh, Abrams and Jordan Peele, they're starting production on a show... 
uh, I think based on HP Lovecraft, in a few weeks or a few months, they've come out and said that they are going to donate the fees and some other things. Uh, they're still going to film in Georgia, and they're going to donate money to Stacey Abrams' group, Fair Fight Georgia, and the ACLU of Georgia because they say that they're committed to uh, employing Georgia workers and doing things, but also to fighting this bill. And now some other groups uh, have not really weighed in on this decision because of those court battles, and this bill will could be blocked pretty soon thereafter, and so maybe it's easier to stay in the shadows and let the courts decide before ultimately they make a decision on uh, supporting or opposing this measure. The Representative Ed Setzler did say this is different than laws in other states. There have been some, you know, reports that charges would be filed against women for having abortions. Is that true, false? Well, what the language of the bill does include, it includes affirmative defense language that says that uh, if a woman has a miscarriage, that uh, they would not, a miscarriage is not classified as an abortion, so it wouldn't be under there. And there is existing case law in Georgia that does say that a woman who has an abortion cannot be charged for that abortion. The criminal abortion charge would be for whomever helped, whether it's a doctor or somebody like that. But with any sort of legal case, in a case like this, Uh, future court cases could decide or a prosecutor could decide to charge someone and it would have to work its way through the courts for us to really know what the true legal effect that this bill would say. But the bill sponsors say they've written language in there that would not charge women or investigate women who have miscarriages and would not charge women with murder for having an abortion. So that's certainly something we will be following with you and throughout GPB on Political Rewind and otherwise. Let's move on to the budget, the fiscal year budget, the only piece of legislation that the General Assembly had to pass. And the governor did sign this record-setting $27.5 billion document last Friday. What are some of the things our tax dollars are going to be paying for next year? Well, you know, our tax dollars every year pay for all of the different state departments, whether it's the Department of Corrections, Department of, uh, you know, Department of Labor, all of these other things. Some of the new additions, the biggest one will be a 2% merit increase for all state employees and a $3,000 raise for teachers and other certified school employees. That's one of the biggest pushes that Governor Kemp called for and put in there, and it's been one of his campaign pain issues. Another big chunk of money that we have is $150 million to pay for new voting machines that will hopefully be ready, according to the Secretary of State's office, by next November's presidential election. And that $150 million will get new machines, but also go for training and outreach so all of us here in Georgia know how to use those machines. So good question there, because five months into Governor Kemp's tenure, he's now passed the first legislative session when he had to work with the state's Democratic and Republican leadership. How have his priorities borne out throughout this process? Well, you know, somebody in the governor's office told me towards the end of the session that they felt like they got 95% of what they were asking for and what they had really wanted to accomplish in this first year. It's Kemp's first year. It's uh, Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan's first year. So it's kind of getting settled in these positions and with these uh, partnerships and cooperation there. But the two big priorities for the Kemp administration have been education and health care, and those have been borne out in the legislative process. You have the teacher pay raise. You have school safety money that's gone, mental health money for schools that have gone. And you've got the governor's priorities with expanding some rural health care options, reforming some certificate of need requirements for different rural facilities, and this big Patients First Act, which will change potentially how uh, the state's Medicaid or Medicare system 
is run along with the Affordable Care Act. All right, we'll dig into those in a minute. This is GPB Politics reporter Stephen Fowler with me. He's been covering the legislative session for us and tracking bills that have been sent to the governor's desk. Which, by the way, the, the budget was signed in Camilla, and some of the final days of signings were also done outside of the Capitol with stops in Cairo, Valdosta, Lake Park. Why does the governor hold these public signings across the state? Well, there's several different uh, reasons for that. Um, some of the bills that he signed in different places were symbolic. Um, he signed pieces of legislation dealing with education in schools because there's places that are most impacted. Uh, there's some rural initiatives that are signed in rural Georgia. And really, you know, he's the governor of the whole state. So signing everything in Atlanta, you know, there's only so many, you know, only so many people that can come see it and only so many Georgians that can experience government. So going places like Cairo and Camilla and Adel and Valdosta and places across the state, uh, you know, it's partially to experience the state and see different parts of the state. But, you know, there are some pieces of legislation that have significance to other parts of the state. You know, Governor Kemp wouldn't sign something to do with the coast up in northwest Georgia. Right. And it wouldn't make sense to sign it in Atlanta. So this is him getting out and about and, you know, signing different pieces in different parts of the community that are impacted. I want to ask you more about that Medicaid bill. The bill that he signed this session could change Georgia's health care landscape. Here is Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan's speaking about the Patients First Act. This plan that, that, is, that has been put into motion, uh, this is step one that allows us to do something that I, I think no other state is doing, and that's combining both an 1115 and a 1332 waiver, which at the end of the day is, is not about Medicaid expansion. What it's about is trying to get free markets and, and private insurance to cover as many Georgians as we possibly can. So the Patients First Act allows the state to start drafting an application for a Medicaid waiver. It took effect as soon as the governor signed it on March 27. How far along is the office in this process? Right. So the Patients First Act, uh, what we have now is we have the Affordable Care Act, also known as Obamacare, and we have the state's Medicaid plan. What this does is it would, uh, the governor is going to work with some sort of consulting group who is going to examine the state's health care system and how things work or in some cases don't work. And that consultant is going to uh, look at the federal law and find ways that Georgia can get exempted from those two laws to create customized health care plans for maybe target populations like pregnant women or children under the age of 18 or maybe demographical areas or geographical areas like maybe southwest Georgia or something like that. So it's a long process, but it was immediately signed and immediately transferred. So they're working and they're going to figure out what consultant is going to work with the state over the next year or so to dive into the state's health care and figure out what, what, if any, solutions can come from seeking these waivers. Well, so they have not yet identified that group as far as you know. Uh, so one topic you have been following closely is voting. Next year's budget includes $150 million to replace outdated touchscreen machines. Also, lawmakers passed several bipartisan changes to how we vote. What is going to be different next time an On Second Thought listener heads to the ballot box? Well, the first thing is going to be the machines of which we vote on. Georgia currently has what's known as a DRE, a direct recording electronic machine, where you push the button 
and your vote is saved on a memory card, the memory card's bagged up and driven into a place to be counted on election night, the new machines are going to be ballot marking devices. So same touchscreen, you know, boop, 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 I vote for Virginia Prescott for president. Okay, I've and, been about to announce. <laughs> and then uh, what happens is it's printed out on some sort of piece of paper. There's a paper component to it, and that will then go into a locked box, and the paper will be scanned uh, depending on what machine is picked, either through a barcode or a QR code or the actual text of your selections themselves and scanned in that way. So it's a more updated system. And there's some other laws that have been changed as well, some tweaks to the exact match law that was controversial that said your voter registration would be held up if it didn't exactly match a database, and some other changes to absentee voting and just overall voting quality of life changes that both Republicans and Democrats have supported. Not every bill that gets to the governor's desk does get the signature of approval. He is a Republican, however, and his party does control both chambers. So did Kemp veto any bills this year? Yes, he did. He vetoed 14 bills and a few line items in the state budget. Kemp has the authority to veto certain lines of the state budget, so it's not all or nothing. So there was a few lines of... You know, this community department needs money from this source and not from this source or things like that. But of the bills that he did veto, one of the ones that people have been talking about is this mandatory recess bill that would have required 30 minutes a day of recess for certain elementary school kids. And uh, in the veto statement for that, he said that currently the local boards of education hold broad authority to establish their own policies. So it's a local control thing. And he felt that the bill, the way it was worded, would kind of create this uh, top-down mandate and this unfunded mandate of telling schools, you need to do this in the time, but we're not going to tell you exactly how to do it. Well, Stephen, stick around with us. Our political reporter, Stephen Fowler, is with us. We're going to stay through the break, and we hope you do too, because we're going to hear about a U.S. House vote to get relief for farmers affected by the hurricanes and the Georgia lawmakers who voted against it. I'm Virginia Prescott. Stay with us for more of On Second Thought, and you can also go to our Facebook group, GPB's On Second Thought. If you have thoughts or questions about this legislative agenda that was just signed, what's becoming law and what is not, stay with us for more of On Second Thought on Georgia Public Broadcasting. We are back with On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott talking with GPB political reporter Stephen Fowler about the bills that Governor Kemp has vetoed or signed. Now we're going to move on to another capital, Washington. A disaster relief package now is heading to the U.S. Senate. The House passed it on Friday. It would give $19 billion to people in Georgia and across the southeast and in Puerto Rico. Stephen, walk us through the timeline of how we got here. Well, in Georgia, Hurricane Michael came last year and caused devastation across parts of the state, uh, Florida, Alabama, other things like that. And since then, Georgia representatives and other states' representatives have been trying to get some sort of disaster aid. Normally, a disaster happens, the federal government declares a disaster, and then there's some sort of aid that comes to whoever's affected from that. 
Not necessarily in this case. There's been a larger holdup over things like money for Puerto Rico's disaster relief and money for the president's initiatives towards uh, the wall and other border security issues. So we've had several false starts of bills trying to go and money trying to go that ultimately has been held up until this point. The House finally passed a compromise last Friday. Now it's in the Senate's court. Some Georgia Republicans did join Democrats to vote yes on the measure, though. President Trump did encourage Republicans to oppose it. Others did vote no. And we've covered the aftermath of Hurricane Michael extensively on the show. Heard from farmers who worry that they will lose land that's been in their family for generations if they don't get relief funds soon. So why did some Georgia lawmakers reject a bill that would give them the help they need? Well, just like I mentioned earlier, there are some larger issues at play beyond disaster relief and disaster relief for Georgia. There's money and funding that's going to Puerto Rico. So that was the sticking point. And, you know, the president's initiatives for the wall and border security and saying that it's a top priority. And so, you know, I guess these Republicans in Georgia feel that they can do both and find a way to compromise for that. But also, uh, most of the Republicans that voted no for it aren't in disaster-stricken areas. Hmm. Well, the Republicans who did vote yes include Austin Scott and Buddy Carter, both represent parts of Georgia hit hard. How difficult was it then for them to buck the party line and vote yes on this? Well, you know, in a ways, they're not really bucking the party line. Austin Scott spoke uh, last week during a hearing, and he blamed Senate Democrats and Democrats for this issue and the president and vice president a little bit. He used the words the vice president said when he toured parts of the uh, area stricken, saying, you know, we stand with you, we stand with our farmers. And he said, where are you with our farmers Democrats. So, you know, it's not necessarily a bucking the party line, but the Democrats in the Senate are the ones that are ultimately going to hold this up. So they want to support their Georgia farmers. Now, of course, going to the Senate where we we had Senator David Perdue on this show stumping for these funds, Senator Johnny Isaacson on Political Rewind doing the same. How do you think they will vote on this measure? Uh, Well, it goes back to what the president says. Senator Perdue is very close to President Trump. And if the president doesn't like this deal, even if they were able to muster the votes, the Republican votes to pass this, the president very well will veto this measure or maybe veto this measure. And then we're back to the drawing board. So it seems like even though it passed the House, it's going to be up to the Senate to the Senate is the one that's going to have to craft an acceptable package of relief and other things for it to become law and for the Georgia farmers to get the aid that they need. Well, if this measure does fail, do Georgia farmers have any hope of getting relief funds before it is too late to save their farms? Well, what we've seen in a lot of places in southwest Georgia and heard from here on GPB is that a lot of these farmers suffered generational losses. So it's not just this year and next year will be a bad year for them, but multiple years it will take to rebuild these trees and uh, like regrow these crops to a way that's sustainable. So many of them have relied on state funds and state loans that the uh, Ag Commissioner has given out, but that may not be enough in some cases. Well, legislative season is over, but we're going to be having more conversations with GPP. Stephen Fowler, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thanks for having me. Stephen covers the state legislature and all things politics for On Second Thought and GPP. And now to one legislative item that could make a big difference in Georgia agriculture, food, 
and mood. On Friday, G Governor Brian Kemp signed a bill into law that allows Georgia farmers to grow hemp. The crop is a source of products ranging from rope to soap to CBD oil. Now, CBD oil was already available in Georgia but had to be imported from elsewhere. This move allows in-state production of the suddenly ubiquitous product. It's on sale everywhere from beauty salons to coffee shops to bars. Alan Peake is a former Georgia state representative who pioneered much of the legislation regarding hemp and CBD and is joining us from our studio in Macon. Alan, welcome. Good morning. Thank you for being here. Leah Picard is also with us. She recently wrote about how Georgians are beginning to embrace the CBD trend for Atlanta Magazine. She's with us in the studio. Hello, Leah. Hello. Okay, so Leah, I'm going to ask you first. There's marijuana, THC, CBD. What's the distinction here? So CBD and THC are both derivatives of marijuana and hemp. Um, neither are marijuana. Marijuana is its own plant, and then hemp is its own plant. And when we talk about CBD, we're talking about the derivative from the hemp plant. Okay, so CBD oil is one of the things that you reported on, where it's popping up. So, Alan, for years, you've advocated for hemp in the Georgia legislature, and there are states across the nation that have legalized marijuana medically, others recreationally. Colorado, Maine, and Oregon come to mind. Technically, Georgia has neither. So, so where does Georgia law stand right now? Well, uh, Leah gave a good uh, description of the difference between hemp and CBD and marijuana. We, we, and we have to keep in mind there are two separate laws that just got passed this session. One, a hemp, all, hemp bill, which allowed Georgia farmers to be able to grow hemp, get a license to grow hemp for basically for m more industrial purposes. And then uh, there was HB 324, which was pushed by Representative Micah Grabley and a lot of the families from Georgia's Hope, and which I've been advocating for for years, which is the growing of marijuana for the purpose of producing CBD oil with elevated levels of CBD, which is the uh, therapeutic part of the plant, and uh, minimal amounts of THC, which uh, is a psychoactive component of the plant, but also provides some effect for people with seizures and cancer and other multiple um, uh, diagnoses. And so the bill that was passed, HB 324, allows the cultivation of marijuana uh, and allows it to be processed uh, to be grown, processed, and distributed uh, only in the CBD oil form. It's a huge step forward. It joins uh, 34 other, 33 other states across the country that now uh, have access to uh, the uh, medical cannabis oil and, and something we've been pushing for for five years now. Well, this is something you had to convince other Georgia lawmakers to embrace something that had been until that point, uh, you know, a uh, a political bugaboo. So how did you do that? How did you educate them on this important topic? Well, it only took five years, so I'm not sure. <laughs> I did a very good job. It took a long time. But really, the, the, the real difference of how we were able to convince legislators eventually uh, was the sharing of stories by different families. I mean, we had many families who had moved to Colorado and moved to other states and had experience with medical cannabis oil and saw tremendous um, uh, difference in quality of life for their children or for their loved one. And plus the fact that now it's been four years since Haley's Hope Act passed that allowed the legal possession of medical cannabis oil. You still couldn't get it here. Uh, and we now have almost 10,000 people on the registry. So what we saw was, okay, once we passed Haley's Hope Act and gave legal possession of medical cannabis oil, there wasn't a huge public health risk. There wasn't a big public safety hazard. Uh, you know, this was an oil that was making a difference in the quality of life for grandmothers with cancer, with 
uh, for college students with Crohn's disease, with soccer moms who had breast cancer, for, to kids who suffered from seizures. And so uh, the, the, all this this evidence that we were able to gather uh, kind of helped us, uh, as well as the fact that we had a new governor, uh, Brian Kemp, you know, had, had expressed to us privately and publicly that he was open-minded to address this access issue uh, where it was always an issue for Governor Deal. And so uh, I think kind of all those things kind of kind of the perfect storm provided an opportunity here where we could pass this legislation this past year. And the legislation, well, actually, I should point out that the U.S. Food and Drug Administration has uh, okayed or given the green light to Epidiolex, which has been shown to help patients with severe seizures. But access has still been a real question. So now there will be cultivation of industrial hemp in the state. How long will it take for that to get on board? Well, I think you'll see the hemp licenses start very soon. Uh, uh, Commissioner uh, Agricultural Commissioner Gary Black is on top of that, and I think you'll see that move forward. But again, keep in mind that's a whole different animal uh, than, than what we're talking about. That, that that those hemp licenses will be used for growing the production of hemp, uh, which can be used for uh, hemp oil, uh, but is a very different product than what we are looking forward from the bill that was passed to produce medical cannabis oil, which has uh, up to 5% THC in it uh, and can be used in, under current Georgia law for 16 different medical conditions. I think you'll see, first of all, the, uh, the governor has to appoint the, the commission, which will grant the licenses, um, which will be six of them, that will be uh, granted uh, by the commission to be able to grow, process, and distribute the medical cannabis oil. That's the first step uh, that's going to have to happen. Then it's probably going to take 12 to 18 months before we actually get uh, medical cannabis oil in stores, <laughs> retail stores or dispensaries or at pharmacies uh, to be allowed to be able to dispense to Georgia citizens. Well, already, as we mentioned, this has been imported from, transported in from overstate lines, and it's showing up not only in medicine, but in some other places too, like on menus. Leah, how is CBD being applied in foodie culture? So we're seeing it a lot in cocktails around town. Um, it's fairly expensive, so it hasn't made like the grand explosion that it has in other cities. Um, but at Big Sky and Buckhead, they're incorporating it into an absinthe cocktail um, where they put the droplets of the oil on top. Mm -hmm. So kind of playing with the flavors there with like the licorice flavor from the absinthe and the grassy flavor from the CBD oil. Um, there's also Sunshine Alchemy, which is a food truck, and they make juices and smoothies where they also offer um, CBD boosts. And the owner, Jasmine, told me how when she goes to Colony Square for people's lunch breaks, people will go up and get a CBD boost on their lunch break and feel a little relaxed going back into work. Oh. <laughs> how does it add to the experience? Is there? You said there was a grassy taste, but is there? what is the effect? So the effect, it doesn't make you high. Um, going back to your difference between CBD and THC, THC will make you high, but CBD is non-psychoactive. Um, and so it's different for everyone, but like you will likely feel more relaxed, maybe a little more zened out. <laughs> and it's not cheap. You mentioned what are the costs of some of the products? Um, I mean, like one restaurant in town offers an add-on for like an extra $10. Hmm. So your cocktail is suddenly like 20 bucks. <laughs> well, this the social use is another gray area. The Georgia Department of Agriculture sent out a press release just on Friday noting that the FDA's regulations still prohibit CBD from being included as an ingredient in food or supplements. And we did get a statement from their food safety division that reads in part that uh, this renders these products adultered and the sale of these products is prohibited. 
thinking they may have just been covering with themselves. Is it illegal for restaurants to be serving these items? I'm not sure. Do you have I'm... any word on that, Alan? Yeah, it's a very gray gray area. In fact, you know, we've had many states uh, right close to us where uh, law enforcement have been arresting folks for selling CBD uh, products. And uh, it, here's the one thing of, incur of, of, of encouragement that I would give to folks is uh, if you're going to buy uh, CBD oil from somewhere, you better make darn sure you're buying it from a reputable manufacturer that can provide you a lab test that tells you exactly what's in that product. Uh, we, we, we are involved with a network that provides – uh, medical cannabis oil to, to almost a thousand families all over Georgia, and uh, and we only provide and we give it to them for free, and we because we don't want to violate Georgia law, but we and and we only provide a product that we know has been lab tested, and we know exactly what's in that product. It's kind of comical watching this fad of the CBD oil. And, it's all and over oil. the place. <laughs> I mean, it really is. It's all you know. We've been fighting for this thing for five years, and all of a sudden they're serving it in, in coffee shops. You know, <laughs> I, I I would be worried uh, uh, one about paying ten bucks extra for a drop and uh, but in my cocktail but but also I'd be worried making sure I know exactly what I'm getting uh, when I get this product as well. So is yeah. it illegal for restaurants to be serving these items or is it more like you know consume at your own risk? I, I, it's technically illegal. I mean, hemp has now been exempt under, under the farm bill. So as long as it's hemp oil, which it means it has zero or very minimal trace amounts of THC, it's allowed. Uh, but, but if you ask the DEA or you ask uh, the FDA, they will tell you that any part of the marijuana plant is still illegal to be able to be sold. And so it's a gray area, but obviously the federal government has taken a backseat uh, enforcing it. Leah, did any of the retailers or restaurateurs you spoke to note risks to customers? Um, there's the retailers I spoke to, they definitely have disclaimers on their website that say, um, that they, that the CBD could trigger like a positive drug test because mm -hmm. there is such a trace amount of THC in the oil. Um, I think if you use a CBD isolate, which is just where it's just a CBD, not, you know, including trace amounts of THC, then you're probably got a better shot of not testing positive for a drug test, right. but there is definitely a risk. And I'm not sure if the restaurants make that disclaimer, but it's something people should know if they are out and about enjoying it, that there is that risk. They could, they could <laughs> fail could trigger, a, yeah, they, a drug test, mm -hmm. a THC detection on a drug test. Georgia Food Safety Division has received numerous requests about wanting to make CBD edibles, and they're now following the FDA's lead in terms of whether or not to consider it safe to add to food. So, Ellen, you're no longer a state rep, but you're still keyed into this discussion. From what you understand, is this on the mind of Georgia legislators, you know, implore, exploring these kinds of more social applications? Yeah, I, you know, the, the the big issue that I always dealt with during my time was, you know, all this is doing is leading us toward a slippery slope of recreational use of marijuana. And I've been very clear that I, you know, do not support the recreational use of marijuana. Um, you know, the, the fact that now that hemp oil or CBD oil is now a potential food additive, you, you know, I, that scares me a little bit because, again, because you don't know exactly what you're getting. Again, I would caution folks to make sure if you're ordering something or you're going to put something in your food or you're going to provide something to your child, uh, you know, or take something yourself, make sure you know what you're getting and uh, make sure you know what's in that product. And uh, and if they need some help, they can find me on Facebook. I can walk them through the process, you know, of, of, of reputable manufacturers to be able to order from as well, too. Um, but I'd be very careful. Oh, okay. Leah, from the social aspect, CBD may be considered a little risque, perhaps part of the appeal. Um, think it's here to stay? Yeah, I think part of the appeal is that it's a relative of, you know, marijuana and people, you know, do 
associate it with that, even if it's not, you know, it doesn't have the THC. Um, and it does give you um, a buzz to a certain degree. <laughs> so we're having um, a lot more buzzed folks in Georgia <laughs> in the future. Leah Picard, thank you so much. Thank you. Leah is a journalist who recently covered the growing tend of, trend of CBD, rather, for Atlanta Magazine. And Georgia Representative, former Georgia Representative Alan Peake, thank you so much. Enjoyed being with you. Now, stock photos are supposed to be real. Why don't they look like real people? We'll find out about a new campaign hoping to change that. I'm Virginia Prescott, and we are back with On Second Thought from GPB. Stock photos are often the butt of jokes for being unrealistic, generic, reused too often, and now perpetuating stereotypes. A new campaign from Getty Images, Dove Beauty, and Girl Gaze wants to change that. Together, they have launched hashtag show us. It's the largest stock photo collection created by women and their goal to subvert beauty stereotypes. The 5,000 images in the show us collection were created by more than 100 female-identifying and non-binary photographers. Peyton Fulford is one. She's an Albany, Georgia native and Atlanta-based photographer, and she's joining us in the studio. Peyton, thanks for being here. Yeah, thank you so much for having us. Also with us is Anna Sophie, uh, Sophia Mackey. She's a Georgia State student featured in the collection. Anna Sophia, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. Okay, so Peyton, you're a photographer. So when we're talking about beauty norms or traditionally what our society values for beauty, what do we mean? Um, well, I think when it comes to beauty norms, um, just going back to how I grew up, I think um, I mostly see in the media lots of kind of whitewashed images of very typically um, smaller framed women um, and that are very like Eurocentric. So I think it's really important with this project that um, Dove and Getty and Girl Gaze are coming together and creating a really big difference and especially stock images that can be used um, worldwide through so campaigns and different projects. Can you elaborate a little bit on why they chose to do this project now? Um, I mean, I think it's really important that now in 2019, people are making a change in the way that our media is seen um, across multiple platforms. So I think Dove being known for doing body diversity campaigns um, for a while now. I think it was really important for them to collaborate with Getty Images and create this one of the largest stock image um, platforms of non-binary and female identifying. And Getty is one of those big photo serving oh, sort of agencies. Yes. Yep. Yep. Well, Anna Sophia, our listeners cannot see you, but <laughs> we will have a photo of you on our website after the show. So how would you describe yourself for them? Um, I would really describe myself as um, black, Afro-Latina, um, chubby, <laughs> um, short-haired, queer, yeah, so, a, a woman. <laughs> well, let's look at that sort of whole idea of womanhood. In, in her memoir, Bossy Pants, Tina Fey wrote, now every girl is expected to have Caucasian blue eyes, full Spanish lips, a classic button nose, hairless Asian skin with a California tan, and the abs of a lesbian gym owner, <laughs> the, the hips of a nine-year-old boy, the arms of Michelle Obama, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Did you feel pressure to meet those kind of standards when you were growing up? Oh, absolutely. I spent... Um you know, the first maybe decade and a half of my life, um, you know, straightening my hair, attempting to have lighter makeup, dress like my um, 
my white counterparts. And so I definitely felt that pressure growing up. And I, I still occasionally feel it um, today. You know, when I'm choosing my outfit and choosing how I want to present myself to the world, I still feel those um, those pressures every morning, really. And where did those come from, those images or the, those ideas of what you were supposed to look like? Everywhere. <laughs> every. Every possible Wait, from your family, from your peers, from media. exactly um, media, TV, billboards, family, friends, school, really any institution with the power to, you know, socialize someone. Really, well, Peyton, you mentioned what we grew up with. What was your notion of beauty growing up in Albany? Yeah, I mean, similar to Anna Sophia, I think I also kind of conformed to those beauty standards that I. Um, saw all around me through different platforms, whether yeah, it be billboards or TV commercials, um, magazine covers, things like that. Um, so I think growing up, I definitely yeah had the instance of wanting to conform a bit, but I never really looked up to um, the models and things that had that kind of ideal standard of beauty because just the people around me that were a part of my family and friends and peers um, didn't look like that um, or present that way. So um, I've always wanted uh, for that image to change and for there to be a broader spectrum of um, gender and um, body diversity and different sexualities and things seen in media. So I think with this project, Show Us, um, it's really successfully doing that in the best possible way. Well, how did those ideas evolve then when you went off to college at Columbus State? Um, well, growing up in Albany, Georgia, I, as identifying as a queer person, I really wasn't able to come out sexually um, in Albany. But once I got to Columbus State, I felt a lot more comfortable in myself um, and felt like I was really able to present um, kind of who I've always been instead of repressing it. Well, there are so many different places where we get images of what people look like or are supposed to look like. What role do these, you're a photographer, these photo stock images kind of, uh, their whole spectrum, what real influence do they have? How are those used? Well, I mean, statistically, 70% of women don't feel represented by everyday images. So I think with stock images specifically, um, I mean... Uh, there's been such a big call for people searching through Getty images, um, trying to find more diverse body types. Mm -hmm. And it just, it wasn't present or known. Uh, it wasn't a thing that people got, could access. So I think with this project, that's exactly what they were trying to do. Um, and I think they did a really brilliant job. Well, Tina Fey, back to her comment, there's this idea of incorporating everything. So people are ethnic but vaguely ethnic and not too too ethnic it, it's interesting that these images that i'm sure are designed to be absolutely inoffensive you find offensive to you <laughs> yeah i think um i think a lot of people might potentially be offended by um by this group of stock images just because um you know, we're a group of people who have been told who have been told to be uh, quiet and be OK with being in the shadows of media and the public eye. And, you know, now we're being loud about our identities and demanding to be seen and demanding that people like us are seen. Um, and, yeah, that's bound to 
anger a couple people. <laughs> that That is Anna Sophia. She's a Georgia State student. I'm also speaking with Atlanta-based photographer Peyton Fulford. Together, they collaborated with Getty Images, Dove Beauty, and Girl Gaze to create photos for the hashtag Show Us campaign. This is a new collection of stock images that aims to upend beauty stereotypes. So is Getty going to make these available for everybody, or are they already available? Yeah, they've they've been available, I think, about the past month. I think it re- the campaign started around March. Um, so yeah, they're readily available to anyone who wants to license any of the images for any projects um, where they feel like they really want to represent real women and um, real people of color and non-binary, um, and also trans women are included in there as well. So. Anna Sophia, I'm wondering for you at Georgia State, you talked about your own idea of beauty changing. Was that over the course of being in school at Georgia State? Was there a particular moment of transformation for you? Oh, absolutely. Um, going to Georgia State has just allowed me to really blossom and become who um, someone that I'm very comfortable with. Um, I've been able to, you know, meet other queer people, other um, black queer people specifically and other queer people of color. Um, and that's really given me the courage to, um, unapologetically express whether it's, you know, my fashion through my fashion or through my hair or through piercings or, um, you know, tattoos, stuff like that. Cause you know, colleges tend to be really liberal spaces. And so, um, Georgia state specifically has really helped me mold myself into a person that I'm simply comfortable with. Yeah. Hmm. And Peyton, you selected your subjects yourself, correct? I'm sorry, what? You selected your subjects yourself. Yes. Um, so me and Anna Sophia have known each other for a little while. Um, I moved to Atlanta about a year and a half ago, and we met kind of early on. Um, and so when Getty Images and Dove and Girl Gage reached out to me for Project Show Us, I immediately thought of Anna Sophia as a candidate um, to be considered for the campaign. And when they chose her, I was very happy um, with their selection. So, how, how have you chosen other people? Do you see people and you ask them or, or people you know generally? I think, it, yeah, mainly the people that I selected for the campaign um, for them to choose from were mainly close friends. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, Peyton, uh, you and you and Anna Sophia, Anna Sophia have a certainly strong Instagram presence. Were you immediately comfortable in front of the camera? Um, I've always felt a little weird in front of the camera. Um, I'm more of a visual artist, so more than being in front of the camera or behind the camera, I'm usually just like in the background, just posting my art. Um, but it was actually a really comfortable experience. Um, like Peyton said, we, we had known each other for a little bit, um, beforehand and, um, it really seemed like Peyton had a good grasp on the message that, um, the message that we were going to be sending through these pictures. And so it was really comfortable. We got to just take the pictures in my dorm room and like, um, and my favorite spots in Atlanta. And so, um, yeah, it was a really good experience, even though I'm not really used to being in front of the camera or anything like that. Well, how did you make people feel comfortable, especially as Anna Sophia was saying, you know, she never thought of herself as that person. Um, she didn't meet those standards. So how did you work with them? Yeah, I mean, I think the nov- number one that thing that comes down to when um, photographing another person is to be as respectful as possible. And I think Anna Sophia knew from the beginning that um, I respected her fully and she respected me as a person and as a photographer. So I think 
early on it was very easy and organic for us to get along and kind of go through the motions of things while shooting and um, I also talked to her before and got a feel for you know her everyday life and we wanted it to feel as authentic as possible so so as a photographer the, you know the Dove campaign for real beauty this launched after a global report that two percent of women in the world only two percent would describe themselves as beautiful so they were applauded for promoting a range of body types and skin tone, but also criticized because at its root, this is designed to increase sales. So was there any considerations for you working with Dove? I mean, I think I've always kind of looked up to Dove's um, way of promoting um, images of women because they had a more diverse um, range of body types. Um, so, I mean, I think as we were previously talking, I think there's always going to be a little scandal around, um, you know, different types of pe media, um, women being shown in media. But I think what it comes down to is that it's a really important project and, you know, all of these voices need to be heard and presented as they are. So, Well, you uh, said that you were photographed in Atlanta, also in your dorm room. Where else did you take photos, Peyton? Um, well, I take photos mainly, well, with my personal work, I do it mainly um, in the American South. So I also photograph um, queer youth around this area, but um, for commission work, I travel often outside of the state. So we mentioned before that these photo photos were taken by female identifying or non-binary photographers. Why mm -hmm. do you think that was important to it? Well, I think it's important that female and non-binary photographers are hired for work. I think Girl Gazed is a really amazing way of promoting jobs um, in that realm um, because, you know, for so long it's been saturated by, um, you know, ma the male gaze. And I think it's extremely important that finally um, we are getting these opportunities to be able to make work because, you know, it's our narrative is so important to be heard and um, to be creating work all together um, as a community. Anna Sophia, we know the Show Us campaign aims to break down beauty stereotypes, but how about for you personally? What did you hope to accomplish by participating? Um, really, more than anything, I feel like my my hopes have already been reached. They um, <laughs> they recently put up a billboard in um, I think it was Bushwick with um, the image that Peyton took of me of the one with my skateboard behind my head and I just want little black girls and little black kids and little kids of color just I want them to see that and know that they don't have to be what other people have told them that they need to be you know they don't have to be um, those limited images that they see on TV, they can be anything. Anna Sophia, she's a Georgia State student and Atlanta-based photographer Peyton Fuller Fulford, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you for having us. Thanks. Known for its live oak trees, dripping with Spanish moss. They are part of the city's history and its future. Cindy Hill takes us inside the Urban Tree Nursery Project, which is training apprentice arborists to grow and care for the city's famed tree canopy. For see a tree or a plant to grow, the roots are everything. The heart, the mind, everything, like, that's the whole body is roots. Come up with a design and we'll, we'll get the plants and you guys can put it together. All right, sounds like that a work? plan. I'm Robert Hartwell, I'm 24 years old, and uh, I got involved in this through the Chatham Apprentice Program, CAT program of Savannah. 
and they teach you how to get a job and be an employer and just for success. And that's how I met Mr. Nick and the, the Green Ranch the project. They was talking about, you know, landscaping and stuff like that. You see those, right? So we've got more of those grasses popping up everywhere, but we're talking about this whole area. It's really hard to plant on. Yeah, because of the Like with the trees, <laughs> that's why we skipped this whole area, all the roots. But what we could do is get some smaller flowering plants and a few shrubs and things and make a nice little landscaped area out of yeah. this. Save some of the flowers. So all. Nick Defley, I'm the director of sustainability at the city of Savannah, and we're standing on vacant city-owned properties that really needed a lot of love. It, it looked like an empty lot that's had probably every former person and animal tracked through it at some point. It's had trash coming from the neighboring uh, gas station littered all over the place. There were vines and weeds and fences riddled with holes and metal laying around. Hello, I'm Jason Smith. Now we have a bunch of trees surrounding us. Beautiful shrubbery. We got some sproutings going on. The grass is green. The sun is shining. It looks awesome right now. We've got I think 10 different species of native trees. Some of them are also saltwater tolerant. These trees gotta have life too. So we gave them a little drip tube right here. So they do is cut the water system on and it, it frequently gives them a drip. I think that the people is really the most important part of this project. You know, the trees are like, kind of like the, the soil and then the people are the plants coming out the, the soil, you know? As we're the ones that are really growing. The neighborhood is just taking this as a step forward. It's a, just a path. Figure out a layout here, watch the fire ants. <laughs> <laughs> but bring those kids too, to start uh -huh. teaching them, because they're younger, right? Yeah, they're super young. And just let them- I can't help but see the trees now, like, and at night when the lights are on and, and you're walking under, it's like, wow, you know? God is good and, and, and the people really can make a change. That's what this means. Like we can make we could be the change in the world just by planting a seed, you know. Cindy Hill produced that piece for us in Savannah, and that is our show for today. On Second Thought is produced by Amelia Brock, Leighton Rowell, and the Raven Taylor. Jesse Nicewanger is our engineer. Amy Kiley is senior producer. Virginia Prescott here. Be back again tomorrow with more of On Second Thought. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.